studying the book of 1 Corinthians in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. If you just wave and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands, and that way you can not only listen, but you can read along and follow along, and the Word has an even even deeper impact upon uh, your life. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the Word of the Lord. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth of the world, the offscoring of scouring of all things until now. I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, Yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. And therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up or talking behind my back, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you tell us that heaven and earth is going to pass away, but your word is never going to pass away. Lord, every tree, every mountain, every sea, everything is going to pass away and give way to a new heaven and a new earth, Lord. But your word is eternal. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to build our lives and this life and our eternities upon your word that never changes, never moves, never disappoints, Lord, never fails. And we pray that you take these verses that we've read here today and help us to understand why they're in the Bible, what they have to do with our relationship with you, Lord. And we pray that you would teach us this by your Holy Spirit. 
and that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. First Corinthians is a corrective epistle. And in it really, from one end to the other, the Apostle Paul deals with a whole series of problems that were occurring at this church in the city of Corinth. And it is very, very valuable to us because the problems that he addresses are the same problems that we face in our culture today and within the church today. We face the same pressures that they, they did. And this letter deals with everything from how to deal with sexual immorality in the church, chapter 5, last, next week, talk about that, how to exercise spiritual gifts within the local fellowship and the church services, how to deal with false doctrine, as he talks about the resurrection late in the book. And here at the close of chapter 4, of 1 Corinthians, he closes this section of the book that has to do with their division with one another, their contentions, all of their fights with one another within the church by addressing what was at the core or at the root of all of the conflict. And what was at the core or the root of all of their division and conflict was this thing called pride. Now, in our passage, Paul identifies pride as being, again, at the root of all of the contentions and divisions that they were uh, engaged in. And we notice that he speaks of their being puffed up in verse 6 and then again in verse 19. And in this passage, he offered them a solution how to change their lives, also to change their church environment from one of pride to one of humility. I think sometimes we think about pride and we think about it only in its uh, most extreme forms or its most overt forms. We all have recognized people that are uh, strongly proud or openly proud. And since, you know, being proud not that many generations ago was something that was spoken against, even in the culture of the United States of America, now it's like, you go, girl, or whatever they... Uh, that's a, I know it's dated, but I'm just getting caught up uh, with the, the lingo of the culture. You have to deal with me on that. True that. <laughs> okay. So but this whole thing is just exalted as, you know, beat them, bust them, that's our custom. You're the greatest. You're the most amazing. You're the deal. Now go out there and show it to them and carry yourself this way and all so, so we see it in its most overt kind of forms where somebody walks in and you just go, man, that person is just full of himself, uh, or their mistreatment of people. And so pride is, is, you know, we sometimes only recognize it in its most extreme forms. But biblically, the word pride, as it's used most often, it simply means to see myself above or to see myself above other people. And the idea is to see myself better than other people. And because pride can only be expressed at the expense of other people, it will always cause conflict in a person's life. It will always create problems and personal 
conflicts within a person's life. If I see myself as superior to people, and that's in my heart, and that's in my mind, then that's going to come out in a multitude of ways, and it's going to become evident whether I begin to treat people rudely because I'm better than them, uh, or it comes out in being dismissive of other people's views. I have to always have the final word on everything, or I interrupt everybody mid-sentence on anything that they're saying, or it can be just in the ill-treatment of, of other people. And so the Bible, in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, it declares, "...by pride comes only contention." When you look at any contention within the body of Christ or you look at a contention in interpersonal relationships and you start to dig down below all of the symptoms to begin to try and find where it, what is at the core of this thing and what is at the core of it is pride. Maybe not on the part of both people, but on the part of someone. Pride is at the core of virtually all sin. And I would contend that it's at the core of all sin as we'll speak about it in a moment. Now, the very first sin in creation was born out of pride. Sometimes we think that the first sin in creation was Adam and Eve in that ancient Garden of Eden, but that isn't true. Satan fell and rebelled against God and introduced sin into God's creation uh, sometime before Adam and Eve were tempted by him, Satan was in a fallen state by then when he tempted them in the Garden of Eden then to uh, disobey God and follow him in essence in his rebellion against God. And we're told of Satan's fall in Isaiah chapter 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High God. And yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of hell. When you read about what Satan was thinking and what he was saying at the time of his a rebellion against God, uh, then you realize that Satan and all of that, he had an eye problem. Our culture has an eye problem. <laughs> Again, this exaltation of self. This is pride. This is sin. This is myself making myself superior to other people. And Satan's rebellion against God was born out of pride, which tells us that pride is very powerful stuff. Here you have the devil. He was the anointed cherub. He was a worship leader. I, when I was a brand-new Christian, about the first four worship conferences I ever went to, whoever was the speaker, usually pastors, reminded us that Satan was a former worship leader. I don't know what kind of problems they were having with their worship team. We've never had it here. but So he was the anointed cherub. You think about what he saw the glory, the beauty, the holiness, the love, the peace, the majesty of heaven. And yet there he is in the perfection of that environment and the power of pride as he would give himself to that to then begin a rebellion against God. And, and pride is very, very powerful stuff. And as a result of his pride, with pride comes only contention, his pride against God, 
a conflict or contention has been introduced into human history that will only one day uh, be brought to an end by the Lord Jesus himself. Pride is the sin that's at the root of really every other sin because all sin is the elevation of my will, the big I, me, my, the elevation of my will over the will of God and God's plan and his purposes for my life. I think it's worth noting that the center letter of the word pride is the letter I. And pride always at the core of pride. Pride is at the core of all sin, but at the core of pride is I. It is selfism gone amuck, gone crazy, to where I am now elevating my will above the will and the purposes of God. It's funny, we live in a world that thinks, you know, the modern culture and everybody thinks they're so cool and they're so hip and they're so independent. We're so free of that Bible and all the restraints of that and God and all the restrictions on all those things. We're so enlightened and, and heading off in all of our new directions in the next, you know, evolutionary phase of mankind. And what man doesn't realize is that in all of this, all they've done is just followed the path of the devil and entered into the oldest rebellion in the history of creation, and that is rebellion against God. It's the oldest sin in the universe. Well, why don't people recognize it? I think that one of the most interesting things to realize about prayer and about pride, and it's very important to realize it, is that the most dangerous thing about pride in terms of among other sins, is that what pride does is when it is introduced into our life, the very first thing that it does is it incapacitates our ability to recognize its activity in our life. We become too proud to recognize that we're being proud. And once pride is able to do that, now it has a free reign to work in our lives because it's able to work unrecognized. There's a solution to that. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But pride incapacitates our ability to recognize our pride. And that's why you can see where someone takes, will in their pride, introduce a split into a church or destroy a church or destroy a marriage or destroy a family or destroy a business. And only after everything is in flames, everybody has crashed and burned, does the person then pull back and realize how arrogant and how self-centered and how proud they had become that they were willing to do all of that. And so the power that the, the, one of the great dangers of pride is our inability to recognize it independent of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Now, this is what was happening at the church in Corinth. Here they are. They're these absolutely flesh-dominated, immature, massively unspiritual Christians. And yet they esteem themselves to be deeply spiritual. They considered themselves to be more spiritual than even the apostles. How in the world can this thing over here be true of you? 
that I'm a, I am a, a carnal, uh, surface baby, uh, self-dominated Christian, and this is what's true of me, and yet I believe this thing that's so far from this truth over here that I'm even more spiritual than the apostles. How do you fall into that particular trap? And they did so because of pride. Now, by and large, the Christians in the church at Corinth were spiritually very proud, they are very smug, and they were very, very self-satisfied. But the lives they were living were just a million miles away in terms of separation from the kind of life, lives that Jesus lived, that the apostles lived, that other deeply spiritual people, Christians, were living uh, at the same time. And in their pride, they thought they were right and all of these other people were wrong about how to do Christianity and what Christianity ought to look like in an individual life and in the culture. And you notice their self-assessment of their spiritual condition. Paul speaks about it in verse 8. They were full. They were self-satisfied spiritually. They were rich. They were materially very comfortable. They didn't have had nice homes. They had comfortable incomes. They didn't have to think about where their next meal was going to come from like the apostles and others did who were enduring tremendous persecution and being faithful to God. Paul said that they reigned as kings without the apostles. And so here they thought they had found a new way of living the Christian life that allowed them to live in perfect harmony with the pagan culture and the people around them, that there was no need to be living as radical a Christian life as the apostles were and that others were that provoked such opposition and such persecution against them. And their idea was, we remain, we've got a Christianity, we've worked this thing out, we've figured this thing out. There's another way than the apostle way. There's another way than the Jesus way. There's another way than the full-on, for God version of Christianity. And we have found that way. We have found a way to be Christians and remain immensely popular within our family and within our neighborhoods and within our city. We don't know what these apostles are doing wrong. And Paul says to them that he wished that they did reign. Because if they did reign, then maybe they could find a way to alleviate some of the persecution and the hardship that the apostles were going through. Paul didn't love his hardship. Paul didn't love the persecution. He didn't wake up in the morning and say, Oh, great, I hope they stone me. Is it going to be a stoning today? Am I going to get whipped today? Am I going to get beaten today? Or am I going to get bad news from a church like Corinth that will break my heart, which is harder for me than anything else? Paul wanted a quiet life. He wanted a simpler life than the one that he was living. And, and so he didn't enjoy it. He wished that they did reign and could bring an end to what the apostles were facing and being faithful to Christ. The point that Paul was making was that either the Christianity of the Corinthians was right and based in reality, or the Christianity of the apostles was right and based in reality, but they couldn't both be right. 
And so in verses 9 through 13, Paul then contrasted their spiritual condition with that of the apostles, and incidentally, the life of Christ. He said in verse 9, to be an apostle or a leader in that early church was virtually a death sentence. And that's the portion of many Christians around the world today. As in the, in the case of many, many leaders in the body of Christ around the world today. I think about Egypt right now, how dangerous it is to be a Christian there. They know nothing. They know nothing of Corinthian Christianity. I was reading this morning, I just caught one little headline because it was Christian in nature on my computer, and this wonderful Christian organization that is arranged to fly out thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians out of northern Sudan into southern Sudan because the Christians are being starved to death. They can't get jobs. They can't do anything because northern Sudan has been made uh, an Islamic state, Sharia law. There's no tolerance for Christianity or anything but Islam under Sharia law. So they're being moved down uh, to the south, which is a more has a more of a Christian influence in the southern half of of the nation. This is a this is a this is the Christianity for much of the world. He says in verse nine that we've been made a spectacle to the whole world. Paul paints them as as people that were living the Christian life like he was living with the apostles being thrown into these arenas to be devoured by animals or whatever it might be. This was their portion. They hardly enjoyed the world's acceptance the church at Corinth was enjoying. He said in verse 10, We are fools, but you are wise. Uh, To have have a letter written to me, where Paul would write something like that, even if there was no other rebuke in the letter, would be one that would ought to humble you right down to your feet. He said, we are fools and you are wise. And the apostles were treated as fools for staying faithful to the Word of God. But those in Corinth, they'd found a way to present Christ to the unsaved in their city that produced no conflict at all. And the Christians in Corinth couldn't understand why the apostles weren't as wise as they were in being able to how. I'm being able to figure out that there's a middle ground somewhere between Christianity in the world and the world. It doesn't have to be all in or all out in terms of those two kingdoms. And Paul said in verse 10, we are weak, but you are strong. It's like Paul is saying, we know what it is to be pushed to the point of weakness in our Christian life, to the breaking point in our Christian lives But you think that you're strong because you've secured yourself in a life of comfort so that you have never had your spiritual strength tested. And since it's never been tested, your Christianity's never been exposed for the weak thing that it is. And so you have the luxury of being self-deceived into thinking that you're truly spiritual when you aren't. He said in verse 10, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. He describes in verse 11 the portion of the apostles experiencing hunger and thirst, poorly clothed, beaten, homeless, laboring, working with our own hands. In that Greek culture of Corinth, they wouldn't even dream of doing manual labor. Paul 
made tents for a living in order to preach the gospel and supply himself in it. In Greek culture, it was a demeaning thing to do manual labor. That was for slaves. And the Corinthian Christians brought all of that over into Christianity, and it began to mar their thinking, and they're looking down on the apostles because the apostles are willing to do whatever it takes to put food on the table in order to continue in the ministry that God called them to. Talk about having the whole thing upside down and backwards in their mind. That's exactly where they were in their pride. Paul said in verse 12, being reviled, we blessed. They knew nothing about being reviled for their faith. Verse 12, being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. Being faithful to God's call upon their life, they had lost their reputation for wisdom. People thought they were fools for giving their life over to the things of the Lord. And verse 13, He said, finally, we've been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. He says, you've reigned as kings without us, verse 11. Again, you live like kings while our portion is very, very different. And to make matters worse, you think you're better than us as a result. And when I read all of this, it raises a question in my mind as to how could how they could be so self-satisfied in such a carnal and spiritually immature state where were they getting their definitions of what it means to be a spiritual christian if not from the example of the apostles and from the teaching of the apostles if they rejected that, then where were they getting their example? They were getting their exa- they were getting their examples from somewhere. And the answer is their definitions of spirituality came from the world. And they learned how to get along with the world in a way that the apostles would have never ever considered and been able to live with themselves. Next chapter, in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. Unbelievable sexual immorality going on in this church. And here they are accommodating the culture all around them. Sexual immorality, they were in essence saying to the culture, we don't take that seriously. We don't want anybody to be uncomfortable in this church. We want everybody to feel comfortable. Abortion and homosexuality, we don't make a big deal out of those things. We don't want to be known for opposing those things. We think it's important to build bridges with the world and, and not to be known so much for what we're against rather than what we're for. We're kind of into love and we're into tolerance. In terms of false doctrine or doctrinal distinctives, no, we don't really care about that stuff that much. We, we believe concerning doctrine, you just need to go along to get along, whatever that might be. You can believe whatever you want about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can believe that it happened. You can believe that it didn't happen as a Christian. All that really matters is that we get along and we get along with the world. And there, and there are a whole world of Christians who do not define their Christianity based upon the New Testament or a deeply spiritual faith, but they are in a go-along-and-get-along relationship with the Lord. And if that means not sharing the gospel, they don't. 
And if that means not saying that Jesus is the only way of salvation, then they don't. And then when the world comes to them and says, and says, boy, I like you as a Christian. You're not like any other Christian I've ever known. I wish more Christians were like you. All the Christians I ever know, ever knew, told me I needed to be saved. All the Christians I ever knew told me that I was a sinner and that my sin had separated me from a relationship with God and I needed to turn from my sin and put my faith in Christ because Jesus is the only way for the forgiveness of sins and in order to go to heaven and have a relationship with God. And, and those were all the, all the other Christians I've ever met were like this, but I'm so glad they're Christians like you. And instead of being ashamed of the Christianity that they were living, they think they found a new and a better way for Christians to impact the world for God than was being practiced by the apostles. The apostles are just fanatics. You don't have to go crazy like that. People that share the gospel with their friends and neighbors and live this life and are serious about obeying God and serious about doctrine and, and purity in their life, they're all fanatics. They're all crazy. You don't, you don't have to be like that and be a Christian. That's the message of Corinth. Everyone else is just a fanatic. You can dismiss them. We're the new definition for Christianity, one we think you'll like a little bit better. The bottom line is that they sought favor and acceptance from the world supremely. They sought ease in their Christian life. And when they got it, they became spiritually proud, and they considered themselves to be better Christians than even the apostles. And that group of Christians needed a wake-up call. And the Apostle Paul gives them a wake-up call in chapter 4. And he was uniquely qualified to do that because he was a father to them spiritually. Most of those that made up the church were brought to Christ and brought into relationship with God and saved through the ministry of God through the Apostle Paul. And the cure for their pride, the pride that they were completely blind to, is pretty simple as Paul lays it out in the passage. In verse 7, he tells them to remember that anything and everything that they had in terms of natural abilities or in terms of callings or spiritual gifts that all of it came from God. And if it all came from God, then how could they boast in them or how could they consider themselves spiritual, spiritually superior or superior at all to other people as a result? What does, if you have it as a gift from God, then how can I boast in that? What does anybody have in terms of intellect or the ability to think or to comprehend except that we've received it from God. The Bible says that for concerning me and every single one of us, that he holds our next breath in his hand. That's how much we owe to God. We owe everything to God. The ability to work with our hands, that's a gift from God. 
the compassion that we have, and maybe you have more compassion than somebody else, that's a gift from God. That's not supposed to be something where, okay, I'm better than other people because that's a gift from God. There's no pride in a gift concerning callings or concerning spiritual gifts that God gives us because they're a gift. That's the thing that just humbles us by the grace of God. But to take a gift, something that I would not be or could not be other than the grace of God, and I begin to consider myself superior to other Christians or other people on the basis of that, it's all upside down. And if everything that we have and everything that we are is a gift from God, then how can I take credit for it and then begin to see myself as better than other people as a result, because to become proud over that assumes I had something to do with that. The fact of the matter is we're all different, and the fact that we are different is a good thing. It's not intended by God to create a sense of superiority in my life towards somebody else or competition with one another or contention with one another, but complementary one another. I'm thankful for every astrophysicist that's alive in the world. And I'm glad God's given them that kind of a mind, that kind of a hunger to learn and to discover. I'm glad for their gift. But you know, when my car breaks down, I want a mechanic and not an astrophysicist. Because he may just send it to Mars. And here's a person that can get lost in his head, not in a bad way, but go out and explore things that the rest of us would be lost in 30 seconds over here. And here's a guy that can look at something in terms of hands and assess it and fix it and deliver it back to you. And the quality of life is superior as a result of it. And it's all complementary in a church, in the whole wide world. We need all of these things. This is one of the problems with public education. I'm not going to start, you know, jumping all over public education. But the system is it moves how it's moved and as money has become tighter on different things and all the experimenting that goes on related to things. And then now you've got the testing and all the things. It's more rigid than it's ever been before. You got a whole world of people that are immensely talented. They will discover the greatest discoveries in, in our generation, but they will never excel in that environment or what public education has largely become because we're so different. And they'll scoot out over here and they'll get diagnosed with is this thing or that thing or whatever. And they got a mind that is crazy in terms of functioning in the world. But you set that mind on a problem that the whole world is facing and their mind won't let go of it until they find a solution. You're going to put them all in jail. You're going to flunk them all out. But I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm just saying people, public education or whoever, everybody's trying to do the best they can, but there's this diversity that is fabulous. And there's a wonderful diversity within the body of Christ and within a local church when we understand concerning Calvary Chapel of Modesto that this isn't just a group of people that decided, hey, 
Let's go to a church that looks like a prison on the outside, and the best one in town that we can see is that one on Fellendale. Let's head over there. God has brought us together because there's just the right, as the Holy Spirit leads us, because there's the right amount of this and the right amount of that, and then one person sees it this way over here, the other person sees it this way, the other person has a gift here, and then by the time you turn around, you got a whole group of people that God can do something with and through in the world that we live in. But He doesn't give us all of these things, whether natural talents that He then uses when we become Christians or the things that we receive from Him after being Christians, spiritual gifts, calling that He has upon our lives. He never gives those to us, so we begin to compare ourselves with one another and then worse yet begin to think that I am better than other people simply because I am better at certain things that God has gifted me at than this person is without realizing they can do a world of things that I could never do. But it all works together, and it becomes something beautiful. And so he tells them to remember everything you've got, anything good that's happening in your life, is because God gave that to you. And not so you could fight with people. And not so you could get lifted up in pride over it. And then second, he tells us and told them in verses 16 and 17 that they needed to make the right people their models or their patterns in the Christian life. And they were these proud, self-satisfied Christians because they had made the world their model and they had made one another their model for Christianity and the Christian life instead of people who were truly and deeply spiritual people. And so the Apostle Paul in verse 16, he called on them to make him a pattern for their Christian life. And then you notice in verse 17, though, that he then told them that Timothy would remind them of his ways in Christ. He said, make me a pattern, and he will bring it out most perfectly a little bit later in the letter when he tells them, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. To imitate him and the other apostles in all of the things that they felt they were too good for in verses 9 through 13. Paul was calling on them to imitate him in the humility that's described there, the other-centeredness, the Christian service to the point of exhaustion, to follow him and the other apostles into the life that he has described in those verses, the very life that they considered themselves to be too good for. And it's very important that our models and our examples in the Christian life be deeply committed and deeply spiritual people and not carnal, self-dominated, self-satisfied Christians. And maybe a number of us need to heed Paul's exhortation to get better examples in our life. And wonderfully and thankfully, the Bible is filled with those examples. I can live in a part of town or an apartment complex or in a part of the world where there's a single human example of that kind of Christianity. Where do I turn? I turn to the Bible. And the Bible is filled 
with such men and with such women. I can turn to Christian biography of men and women who laid down their lives over and over and over again, their whole three score and ten, faithful to the Lord to the end. And somebody writes their story so that we can read it. And then that becomes the influence. You can live in, a, you can live in 2013 in the United States of America and Christianity can become so watered down from its intent and sometimes you pick up a book about what Christians knew and the kind of life that they lived and the kind of commitment that they had a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, and it's like a wake-up call. It's wonderful. It's huge what happens. We say, this is my example. This is what I, this challenges me in a way that nobody else in my life challenges me. And it can be found in that kind of a place. And then it can also be found in studying the lives and making a pattern of many of the saints that you can find in any healthy local church. And I think about the little church that I attended. I was in junior high, late junior high, and it was kind of ninth grade through senior high. Boy, oh, just an absolute lost, lost cause of a kid. And they couldn't have known that anything was getting through. And yet I remember Bill McDonald when he would come twice a year and teach. Quietly in my heart, though it would be years before I would walk with the Lord the way I was supposed to. He became an example to me. So did Mr. and Mrs. Callison. So did Mr. and Mrs. Bradford. So did Mr. and Mrs. Williams. And none of them knew that it was going on, but it was there to look at and to say, these are examples to follow after. These are people that are living this life. A great thing happens in touching these uh, lives and reading the Bible, these saints that are dead. I think about in the Old Testament, remember when Elisha died, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, he died, and in those days they didn't kind of bury you out, at, you know, and dig in the ground and all. It's pretty rocky ground and stuff. They had lots of caves. They just would put you in a cave or in a pit. And so when he died, his body was lowered into a pit, and, and uh, these a raiding party came in from Moab and one of their members of their party died and they just decided, here's a pit, let's lower his body down in there, we got to keep going. They lowered his body down there, didn't know Elisha's bones were down there. The man's body hit the bones and he came to life and then they found out it was Elisha's bones. <laughs> Sometimes it's like that when you read the Bible. These people are gone 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. Christian biography, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and yet you come into contact with their bones and it produces a life that the culture will never produce. And sometimes we won't produce in our contact with one another. And I want you to notice that Timothy was sent to remind them of what Paul was calling them to and that what Paul was calling the church to in terms of Christianity was what he taught everywhere. In other words, Paul said, I don't have one message when I speak here and another message over here and one version of Christianity when we're here. And then we come to Corinth and we speak another different version of Christianity. He says, I speak 
what Christianity is supposed to be and what Christ has called us to in every single place that we uh, go. In other words, Paul was living and he was teaching that what was a true Christianity. I don't know of any better way to be challenged to a deep spirituality and to have my pride exposed at the same time than to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to speak to me through His Word on a daily basis. And you as well. It's called a devotional life. It's our personal, it's our private part of our relationship with the Lord. It's a part of the private relationship. One of the beautiful things, one of the greatest descriptions of the Bible in the Bible is it's described as a mirror. In other words, if I want to know what I'm really like, you've ever found it's hard to find someone who will tell you the truth? The older I get, I'm telling you, I, I, I watch more people now clam up and not tell people, even people that they love in their family or their best friends won't say anything to them when they're about to drive off a cliff because they're afraid that the relationship is going to be threatened. It is very, very hard. If you have two people in your life that will always tell you the truth and will tell you when you need it, you are rich beyond what I could ever describe. So to have some source in life that will always tell me the truth about myself is invaluable. And the Bible's a mirror because a mirror will always tell you the truth about yourself. I, I, I enjoyed that myself there for a moment there. Whether we like it or not, it will do that. So we go to the mirror of the Word in the morning, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? In Jesus' name, amen. And then we begin our reading. And then he begins to show us things in our life, an attitude here, speak to us about how we treated our wife the night before, the attitude that we've gotten toward one of the kids or somebody at work or whatever it might be. And then it gets exposed to us, our pride and our arrogance so often that is there as well. And we're able to see it. And I'll tell you, it's priceless. This Bible is a convicting book. And we see it. We say, thank you, God, for showing that to me. I wouldn't want to do any more damage than I've already done with that attitude that's in my heart. I confess it as sin. I repent of it right now. And I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the wisdom to now undo the damage that's been done. And the Word of God is priceless in that way. And so the importance of realizing that what we have, all that we have has come from God, and then making people... The right people are patterns and our models in the Christian life. And the Word of God is a result. I can be wrong about what I'm going to say now, but I don't think I'm wrong. I think a fair amount of Christianity taught and practiced all around us today in our nation is broken and it's Corinthian. 
I remember some years ago, prior to the great economic collapse of 2008 and 2009, I would just look around at the economy and I would, the economy of the world, and I just thought, how can, how can this be happening? How can this be occurring? Money being made hand over fist and debt exploding in all directions and nobody seems to care about debt anymore like it's not an issue. I'm talking about individual lives. The price of homes skyrocketing, virtually zero unemployment, and all of it was occurring in violation of every sound economic policy that I knew of. And it went on week after week and month after month, and it went on for years, onward and upward and onward and upward. And I had a moment. I remember I was driving in the car thinking about all of this, and I thought, Lord, what's going on here? Is there like a new truth in economics that allows for all of this to go on indefinitely? Does a, does a foundation under... <laughs> Does there not need to be a foundation or a basis in reality to any of this? Is it all just positive thinking and we all just build on that until it just goes on indefinitely? Is, it, is there a new way? I mean, it even had me wondering a little bit. And then the bottom fell out from under everything. With all the models and all the hype collapsed under the weight of what had been built on it. And the old ways were right after all. Everyone just got fooled otherwise for a time. And I wonder if the same thing isn't happening today in Christianity and our nation. I can't speak for other nations. I don't live in other nations. There are new voices speaking today in Christianity that I don't understand. And they don't sound like my Bible. And they're talking about new ways. Preaching a Christianity that doesn't involve any sacrifice on our part anymore. How the world isn't to be confronted with its sin and its need for salvation. As somebody wonderfully did for each of us that knows the Lord. that we need to be content to build bridges to the culture, begin a conversation with the culture. But the problem is, is the conversation is on the culture's term, and the conversation goes on for weeks and months and years, and nobody delivers the gospel in this new model. Sin is a word that might offend, so it isn't used. If you don't know, you would be ashamed you would be heartbroken over the number of churches in the last few years who have made it a deliberate policy to underemphasize the use of the word sin or to eliminate it altogether so as to not offend or make anyone uncomfortable that comes into the church. Jesus is the only way of salvation is considered way too co confrontive, and so it is 
unemphasized. And what happens when you're a Bible Christian and you're serious about all these things is you can start to think you're crazy. And you can find yourself wondering if maybe the old biblical Christianity has served its purpose and now it's time to get out of the way for this new thing. But this new thing scares me because it's not a Christianity that can hold a life together when life gets really hard and life can get really hard. The hardest thing you and I will ever do in life will not be something we do in this life. It will be to live this life in this fallen environment. And one day, this Corinthian Christianity, that Christianity that looks nothing like the life and the teaching of Jesus, is going to fail every single person who subscribes to it. God will never fail us. But a Corinthian Christianity will fail us because it's not the Christianity that God has called us to, and that Christianity will fail us at the worst time imaginable. A Christianity that is based upon Christ and the Bible, all of the Bible, will be a rock-solid foundation under our feet and under our lives, as Jesus said, that no matter what storm hits us, the house won't be moved. The Corinthian Christianity is a house that's built on sand. And the storm comes and the storm hits that house. And Jesus said concerning the collapse of that house, not only does it fall, but he says, great is the fall of that house. And this Christianity that is all around us is setting people up for a terrible, terrible fall and disappointment. When real trouble comes, whether individually or personally or on a larger scale in the human condition, I think that the wealth and the power of our nation in times past that's allowed us as Christians in the United States to play games with Christianity, to make it into whatever we wanted or make it more like the culture than like the Bible. And so we engage in all of these doctrinal experiments and all of these, you know, uh, experiential experiments. And if it failed in the United States of America, it was no big deal because we live in the bubble of the most powerful and the wealthiest nation in the world. So you could just dust yourself off, come up with some other piece of nonsense, go on your way. You could always get a fresh start. The country itself put a safety net under us, and it accommodated our nonsense. 
I think those days are over. I think we live in a time where a real and an authentic and a Bible and a book of Acts Christianity is going to be required of us as Christians in the United States of America, just as it's been required of Christians everywhere. The last days are going to be challenging times in the world. I don't say to produce fear. Paul didn't speak any of these things to produce fear of whatever decisions people are making in the world and government and economy and beyond all of that. But spiritually speaking, it's going to be a heavy time to be a Christian. Lots of apostasy, lots of false doctrine, and lukewarmness will become the norm. Corinthian Christianity. And people will be so proud of their lukewarmness and their lack of zeal and their lack of Bible basis and so proud of their new ways that as Jesus wrote to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, one of the last day's churches, Jesus is on the outside knocking, trying to get in, and they are so proud and they are so arrogant that they don't even know there's something wrong with that picture. Jesus wrote to that letter and he said, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were hot or cold. But then because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This is Corinth. This is Corinthian Christianity in the last days. God said, Jesus said, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich in white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit speaks to the churches. And this is going to be a dominant presence and representation of Christianity in the last days. And it is Corinthian Christianity, known as the Church of Laodicea. And it's the Christian environment that we live in today. And it will become so dominant that you will think you're the crazy one for believing what you believe and that you're the fanatic and crazy one for living the life that you live as described on the pages of Scripture. And because that is the environment, 
And that will become increasingly the environment spiritually of what calls itself Christianity and the world in the last days. It's good for us to hear these things and to know these things. And it's a needed warning. And so it comes across as a warning because Paul intended it to be a warning. You are not crazy. You are not the fanatic. You are not the person that needs to change. You're okay. You're doing what it is that's right. All the rest of it is bogus. Don't fall for it. It will one day completely collapse. And at the world's worst time. And then we'll be thankful that we built our lives and our house on the Word of God and what is described here with the confidence that that cannot be moved and that that cannot be shaken or destroyed. And God wants us to have that confidence. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Lord, this other thing is so big. This Corinthian Christianity and all of its pride and in all of its arrogance. And it is so enlarging its coasts, Lord, and it is so popular, and it's so followed, and it's so clever, and it's so charismatic. That, Lord, we can feel, come to feel, that we're the crazy ones. And it's the other way around. And we can come to feel that the old ways have been replaced, Lord, and tempted to leave them ourselves for all of these new things. And we thank you for the strength of your warning through the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth and also to us to encourage us to stay right where we are and the things that have been tested by time and every trial that the world could throw against it, Lord, the Christianity that we see in your Son and that we read about in this book. Keep us there, Lord. But thank you for how this passage brings encouragement and strength and perspective. We need it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.